The Charles Adler Show starts now. Can't tell you how great it feels to do podcasting. I realize I've only been doing it for a couple of weeks, so it's kind of the the honeymoon period and all that. But I was sharing this with some of our followers on Twitter the other day. I can't remember exactly what I said, but it doesn't matter. But the, the spirit of it was that unlike all of those years, 20, 30, 40, 50, who's counting? All those years before podcasting, when it came to radio, for various reasons, I'm not blaming anybody, but because you're you're following the daily drip, drip, drip of news and you're talking to whoever is available that's uh, called a newsmaker, you are forced into a situation where you're talking to some people who are just uh, not, 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 not wonderful conversationalists, okay? Not, not exciting. Okay, I'll say it. Boring is... As bat crap, okay? As something that you just have to do and you have to sort of suck up the, the ego drive to only talk to interesting people and talk to people who are connected to the news. Okay, so that's news talk radio, and that is now in the ancient past. The great thing about podcasting is I only get to talk to great, fearless conversationalists. I, I don't have to follow the drip, drip, drip of, of, of daily news. That's somebody else's problem. So one of the, my favorite people over the years, and I... I don't know exactly know why we haven't had a, a catch-up uh, sooner, but we're going to do our catch-up uh, uh, right now. And that's not catch-up as in French fries catch-up. That's in catching up. But in Canada, we don't say catch. We say catch. Unless Lorraine says it differently in southern Ontario. Lorraine Sommerfeld is our special guest. Lorraine, is it catch-up or, or catch-up? How do you say it? It's we catch-up. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, it, it, it's been a long time since, since we talked. And the last time we talked, I thought you were an author, but it turns out you're a brand new author. I had to read about this in the in the Hamilton Spectator of all places. Now, help disabuse me of, of my 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 myth. Why did I think that you had already authored? Is it because you you had told me for years about a book that you wanted to? Because I, I, seriously, when I when I read that this is your first book, I went, no, 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 no. She's been writing. She's been writing for years. Well, I've been writing lots of other things. I just hadn't written a book. And I'd always wanted to write a book, which everybody around me is, you know, tired of getting thrashed over the head with that. It's about time I finally finished one, I've heard more than once. So. Well, I just said uh, you were one of these people who, to me, had several books in you because uh, one of the reasons that uh, you're one of my favorite guests, and I think everyone knows after a while, what is it that makes a great guest? And number one, it's being able, yeah, number one is, is smarts. Okay, I'll, well, let's just put that aside. If, 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 you, if you're not smart, my I don't suffer fools very well. So number one, smarts. Okay, fine. But after that, the most important thing to me is someone who's a natural born storyteller. And you, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. I mean, technically, uh, in recent years, you're considered an automotive writer. You're not just considered one. You're one of the best automotive writers. But it doesn't matter. Anything you have a passion for, you're an exceptional writer. And the reason for that, I think, is because you know how to tell a story. Now, without you dumping on any of your peers, can you explain to me, in your own Lorraine Sommerfeldian way, why people who aren't really great storytellers are all over media. They're in TV, they're in radio, they're in newspapers. And I'm always saying to myself, nothing against this person personally, but who wants to hire someone who, who can't tell a story? Well, I think what you said at the top of the show, which is when there's people that have to get the news out, you don't really want storytellers when it comes to the news. So I think it depends on you know, what genre you're writing in. And what I do with Motherlode, like as a columnist, I do tell stories. I tell stories about your kids and your parents and my parents. Like I do tell the stories of our lives, basically, little tiny things. But 
other people, it, I'm not great at straight news. You're not, you don't want me writing your news pieces because you're going to get Lorraine's opinion. And some people, I don't know why, don't want that. So I think we have to keep the categories separate. And it'd be nice if everyone stayed in their lane and did their job really well. Doesn't always happen. So I was in between uh, jobs uh, many times, just like you, okay? <laughs> you hang around long enough, you, you go through these periods where you're in between jobs. So I was in between jobs. I was in uh, Calgary and the uh, uh, company that I had been doing talk radio with, uh, they, they sold their company and the company they sold it to didn't want to do talk radio. Interesting because years later that, that company made me a, an obscene offer, uh, obscene in the sense of obscenely sweet offer uh, to come join them. But anyway, in 19... 19- whatever it was, in 1991, uh, Shaw uh, bought Moffat, and Shaw didn't want to do talk radio. So I was in between. So I was, I was about to uh, go, to the, uh, go to the States, and on my way to the States, uh, I was in between uh, waiting for papers and, and what have you. So I end up at uh, CFRB at uh, Young and St. Clair, what a place that most of us consider kind of a, or was a, a, a great cathedral of broadcasting, a lot of, a lot of famous uh, voices and faces over the years. So it's a really big deal. My first, I've been in Toronto several times doing several gigs, but this was my first time at uh, CFRB 1010 at Young and St. Clair. And uh, there you have it. I'm over there, and I managed to bump into just uh, some of the uh, most fantastic storytellers. But before all of that happens, uh, they don't actually have a permanent five-day-a-week talk show thing available to me. And uh, they just knew that I was available, so they wanted to hire me, have me in the building. And then the middle management people get into justifying uh, my keep, my compensation, all the rest of it. They've got a couple of shows for me to do on the weekend, but nothing during the week. So one of them says, well, why don't we just put him into the newsroom? And they bring the news director into the conversation. The news director says, there's no way Adler, there's no way that Adler is going to read news on CFRB because he cannot even clear his throat without offering an opinion. And my guess is, Lorraine, that in the news industry, you were seen the same way. You know, great great storyteller, uh, picks up on things that most people don't even see, knows how to relate to great masses of people, but don't have her doing any straight news because yeah. she's too opinionated. No, and I, I don't have a journalism degree. I have an English degree, and I've never made bones about that. I'm, I'm a writer, first, foremost. And I have so much respect for the people that know how to do journalism because it's very, very difficult my instincts are so stupid when it comes to that. I've gone out and done stories and come back. And editor goes, did you get their name? I go, it was Bob. They go, it's the last name. I go, well, we got talking about his mom. Did you know what his mom did? And they're, they're just like this. They're going, you, you didn't, you know, how about follow-up? Did you get a phone number? I go, was I supposed to get a phone number? <laughs> so I come back with a beautiful story about Bob's mother. I'm supposed to get, you know, a very specific story about Bob which of course I've totally missed because it wasn't interesting to me. So yeah, in a lot of ways, I'm not the person to send out there for that, but you know. Was Lorraine <laughs> Sommerfeld a daddy's daughter? Is that just my impression? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. My dad was very important to me. I love both my parents. They've been gone. My dad's been gone 26 years, but he definitely had an impact on who I am and how I am. I, I like to blame dad. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, tell me about Mr. Sommerfeld. Um, he used to tell me, I, I have sisters and he said, you make sure you can always take care of yourself. He would tell any poor soul that showed up here to date me that I was the brains of the operation. <laughs> he was, um, 
He was an old farmer from Saskatchewan, from the prairies. He said what he meant. He made up his mind in 10 seconds about somebody. He was usually right, which was the most frustrating thing of all. But he just, I was raised to take care of myself, to do what I wanted to do, to be strong and not get pushed around. And that can make you not the most popular person in the world. And my mother was so charming and kind. So I'm I'm hoping she rubs some of the riages off a little bit because <laughs> my dad, um, he, he was a bunch to handle, but I adored him and he made me take no BS from anybody. He's very much, um, he, ha- he had a great ed education and he's one of the smartest men I ever knew. He was self-taught and I learned politics and I learned history from him. And you've heard me talk about politics. I get a little heated, but no, it was a great role model. He brought himself up on his own. He'd been an orphan from 13 and watching this man create what he did. I I thank them every day. I live in the same house that I was born in. I bought it from them. And it's the only way he would sell it when he was sick was if Rainey bought it. And I said, I'll, I'll buy it. That's great. And I got to raise my sons here. I never could have done that. I couldn't be a writer without my parents. They gave me the stability of this house so that I could raise my kids. So, yeah, I'm grateful. Did you ever meet a guy who couldn't live up to daddy's standards? <laughs> Many. <laughs> oh, yeah. And things, you try and change the parenting. You know, your parents make mistakes, so you you say you're going to change their mistakes. And I realized that if I if my kid dated somebody that I maybe didn't prefer, if I went at it and said, oh, that's bad, they would defend and hang on longer. So I learned to shut my mouth because my dad had voice. He would say it right away and I'd go, no, you raised a stubborn young woman. And so I'm going to fight you back on this. So I, I learned, just shut up. <laughs> just accept all. <laughs> so, so, Lorraine, there will be people who uh, no doubt uh, will book you to be on their podcasts or radio shows and, and, and might not spend any time on the book at all, simply call you an author. And I just have never felt that that is fair ball at all. Uh, you know, uh, being an author is, is a really big deal. Uh, there are a whole bunch of people that are listening to podcasts or on social media who think they have one or two or three or four books in them. And I think everyone has at least one or two good books in them. But very few people have the courage to put it on the line and ask a publisher uh, to publish the book. And I think, I think the reason is uh, fragile ego uh, can't stand the thought of rejection. It's not easy knowing that you're going to be rejected. So what is it about Lorraine Somerville's character? I don't care whether it comes from mom, dad, boyfriends, husbands, life. It doesn't matter to me. Where does the guts come from to face rejection? I, I think, and this was when I did find a publisher, we had a really good conversation and I said to him, I'm a first-time novelist, but I've got 20 years of being told I suck, so don't worry. Like, there's nothing you can do that's going to break my heart. I've had columns killed. I've had, you know, approaches changed. I said, so I'm used to this every day and on deadline. Like, I, you don't have the the luxury of waiting months to find out if something worked or not. And I also understand what readers like. And to me, this novel, I don't want to let anybody down. I want to give them a really good show, a really good ride. That's the genres like that. It's, you know, turn the pages and keep going. But I've had 20 years of being told no, or that's wrong, or that's not working. And I've had some great editors. I've had some terrible editors, but that's good because I think it makes, as an author, it's got to help. If you've heard a lot of no and rejection and about very specific things, sometimes 
if if an editor says to you, this isn't working, this thing, a lot of people, especially if they're new, will think they're getting rid of the whole thing. They're not. They're asking you to change pacing or something. Doesn't mean they're throwing the whole thing out. Because trust me, they'll tell you. <laughs> if the whole thing is no good, they'll tell you. But I'm used to hearing, get rid of the this last part, change this. So it's not so demoralizing. It's like, is this part okay? Yeah, that's good. All right. So it's being open to change and letting people make you better. And I am so grateful for good editors. They make me better always. And I read so many other authors. They make me better. And that's what we tell people who want to write. Well, right, I reading. think some people make the assumption that the Margaret Atwoods and the Stephen Kings and the John Grishams and all the rest of the great authors have never been rejected. But is that true? Or is it true that every one of them has been rejected once or twice or a hundred times and, and kept on going? There was a wonderful tr- Twitter thread last year that I stumbled on and a young author had written her first book and she went to do a reading at her local bookstore and there was nobody there. And she goes, I feel so awful. Like, I can't believe it. I'm so embarrassed, but I have to, this is what happened. And what came on that thread was Stephen King and all these world famous authors and a lot of not famous authors all piled in saying, oh yeah, that happened to me. I remember when that happened, that (laughs) happened. I said, I gave a speech one time and the only person that came was the woman that drove me. Like it happens. And the whole thread was just so uplifting. And this young woman felt so much better because we're all in the same boat, no matter how much we know we're not in the same boat. I'm not in the Stephen King boat. I'm not even in the tugboat behind his boat. But we all have faced, I think what's more difficult now is when someone like Stephen King was starting out, there was more money in the magazine industry. People could get paid to write long form and to write stories for magazines, Equinox and you know GQ and New Yorker. Those opportunities are so slim now and the pay's not there. He could raise his family and develop a Coke habit getting paid by magazines. That is absolutely unheard of. So it's almost like we don't get as many places to practice. So I feel grateful that I slid in as a columnist and got to practice, you know, what I want to do. So I was lucky. Whose face is in the window? The bad guy. <laughs> it's a escape murderer. <laughs> This, uh, that is sort of my cottage, not really, but it's a bad guy looking in the window. Young woman. You want to know where the, this story came from? This is kind of funny. Um, when I was, my kid who's 31, he was eight months old and I was at my cottage with him, family cottage. I used to go on my own all the time. And I watched the X-Files at night. This is in the, the review that Graham Rockingham wrote. I watched the X-Files, scared myself. And then I see a newscast and two guys have escaped from a prison. I don't even know if it was in Canada, but I decided it was down the road in Penetanguishing. I stayed up all night. I was absolutely terrified trying to figure out how I would save my kid and myself if these guys came and found me in the middle of the forest. And so I was scared. And so that was over 30 years ago. And that's where the kernel of this came from. So it was real. It started out as a real fear and... When I read scary books, I like it when they're kind of close to what could happen, you know? <laughs> so the, the kernel of this uh, was 30 years ago. My guess is over the last 30 years, uh, you've talked to several people about this book that you sort of kind of have done a few chapters on, but there might have only been one or two people who really push, push, pushed you to, to, to finish the darn thing. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, Brad Smith out in Dunville, he's an old friend of mine, and he he writes amazing books, and he's an excellent writer. 
And he got sick of hearing about it. He goes, finish it. We don't talk till you finish it. But he goes, everyone has half a book. I go, oh, I have two half books as well. I know. <laughs> but no, and there's another friend of mine, a really close friend who just said, you can do it. So do it. And I go, okay. So I have two full-time jobs and two kids I'm raising in a house, <laughs> but that's good. <laughs> so it took longer, but a lot of first-time writers will tell you that they have to work in off hours and I have about four good hours a day in me in the morning to write after that. It's gibberish. Like, you know, I can edit, but I can't write. So trying to find time while still doing my day job, like writing and writing to deadline. And there used to be a lot more traveling involved. So um, that settled down, which is good. So I finally just thought, you know what, this thing's almost done. Finish it. So I finished it and then started rewriting it again and again and again. <laughs> to be a pro writer, do you have to write something not necessarily the, the the book, but you have to write something virtually every day. There's a lot of schools of thought on that. Um, I do because if I don't write it down, it's racing around inside my head anyway. And most writers I know are like that. So you end up, it's easier to write down a little bit, even if you're on vacation, you're taking notes on your phone, you know, you look at the color or something and it, you want to capture that. But most people I know, even I think writers have this uh, kind of reputation as they're sitting in a round room getting drunk in their underwear or something. <laughs> you have to, you have to be, uh, yeah, you have to be a lot more disciplined than that. You know, you have to get drunk later, not before, because anything you write drunk is stupid. But um, no, I'm kind of get up, get the kettle on, sit down. No one talks to me before noon. Get the work done. And the hardest thing for me is when I have to do interviews or writing after like six o'clock at night or seven o'clock at night, I am burnt out. Like my brain just kind of shuts down. So, Do you still have those moments where you're asking yourself, will anyone call? Will anyone be interested in talking to me? Will anyone be interested in reading me? I've just been lucky all these years that my, my time is, is running out. My string is running out at any moment. Do, do you still have that kind of fear? Because a lot of, a lot of writers say they have it and some people believe it and some people don't, but I believe everything you say. Well, my job um, gives me the opportunity to be the expert on something. <laughs> and I, I'm on a lot of radio across the country. I write for a national paper and this is about cars and driving industry. And so I get to be, you know, I get to learn and learn and learn. And I know a lot about that. That's not Lorraine. That's my job. And when I get it wrong, oh boy, do I hear if I get it wrong. And I really try not to. So I've got the, again, it's a luxury. I'm used to dealing with interviews. I'm used to giving them. I'm used to, you know, setting them up, doing them myself in a different forum. This, this is different. This feels, I'm a little bit chicken. Like I'm a little bit nerves are nerves are high on this because this is me and I am asking people to pay money and I, I refuse to let them down. It's like, no, I want you to have a really good story to read, but it really is me. I can't hide behind telling you how to set up a lease for your car. I can't hide behind telling you what tires you should be running. All that stuff is, you know, what I'm used to telling people and they go, oh, okay. They believe me. Now I'm going, I wrote this and you're going to love it. And they're going, we'll see. <laughs> So it's it's a face in the window, and it started out as a Canadian window, but like uh, so many people who uh, want to do business, they're looking at the market, and uh, Canada's got 40 million people, and that's wonderful, but the States has almost 10 times as many, much bigger market, and so I guess, Lorraine, you felt that from a business perspective, you had no choice but making this a U.S. story. Well, it's true, and even picking the genre, it's not something... 
like I looked at them all and I looked at how people wrote and how people were successful because I didn't see wanting to fail at it. So I thought, what can I do that's interesting to me? And it's also stretching another muscle. Um, I write in areas that I, you know, let's just say wouldn't necessarily want to write about. My kids was easy. That was an easy go. And that column's still running. The car stuff I had to learn fast and a lot. And that's been 18 years, which is good. So I applied that same kind of technique. It's like, okay, what kind of book do you want to write? I would, I've got this kernel of a story. What can I do with it? How can I tease this out? And then I look around and you're right. I look at the publishing industry. I look at who's selling where. I look at what kind of stuff. And the other thing is I love that region of upper New York, the Finger Lakes. I love it. I've been there a bunch. And the geography of it is fascinating. These long, narrow lakes. That is, that was really, really an important component of the book. And it wasn't a hard reach for me to do that. The cottage is still mine near Perry Sound. But. So the part of the world you're in, uh, Lorraine, uh, the Canadians, I mean, you're in Burlington, Ontario, and Southern Ontario, and everyone there, I think, uh, knows where the Finger Lakes are. But because they're listening to this in all parts of Canada, the States, and Lord knows how many parts of the world, identify it for me. Uh, you don't have to, uh, you know, g- give me a Google map, but just approximately uh, the the Finger Lakes, uh, aside from the, 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 the uh, what you just described in terms of uh, the, the narrow lakes, but aside from that, wh- where are the Finger Lakes and outside of the uh, narrow band of lakes? Uh, what else is interesting about the area? Well, it's upper New York State and there's Albany. It's not far from Albany and Geneva, which I changed the name to Delaware Falls in the book. But um, smaller, older cities and towns perched along the lakes, and the lakes have exploded in the last you know, 10 or 20 years, playgrounds of the rich, like the money's moved in and stuff. But the area itself, I just find it kind of quaint and cool. There's national parks, a lot of national parks around there, which are interesting. There's a prison, which was very handy. Um <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I drove down a few times and I've been through for on my way to other places and I always stop. I, I just, on the map, the lakes look so cool. They look like fingers and they're narrow. So these long, narrow lakes with a ton of shoreline, it was very interesting to me. So uh, you're approaching mainly American the publishers because most publishers are, so it makes sense to have an American-based story. What was the uh, what was the publisher's first reaction to the, the first draft that Lorraine Sommerfeld sent in? Well, I was surprised because the industry is going through a lot of changes right now. It's very, very, very difficult to get anything published if they don't already know who you are. And my writing career doesn't amount to anything in the book world. And so I couldn't get, and it's turned down by one or two publishers here, editors. So it's like, okay, that happens. And then I kind of parked it. I was busy and COVID started and all that stuff. And then there was a new publisher starting up in New York City, and he said, I'm taking manuscripts. And I went, really? And so I emailed him. I said, you're taking manuscripts? He goes, yeah. Most publishers won't do that because they get inundated with everybody's great story that they have in them. He goes, yeah, I am. So I sent it to him. It was sitting there. It's like, okay, I have zero to lose on this. It's finished. Who cares? So I sent it to him. And he, two weeks later, he emailed me. He said, can I call you? I said, yeah. <laughs> so he called me and he goes, this is a good story. I said, now you're going to tell me that if I put up $3,000, you'll you know, set me up with an editor. He goes, no, those are grifters. That's like not because I refuse to self-publish. I thought I need someone else that you know thinks this is good. He said, no, I want to work with this. He goes, this is good. And you're a writer. He goes, which helps. But it was kind of nerve wracking. But 
he made up his mind. He's, he's a young guy starting out fresh and he wants to give, you know, publishing ability to people that are left outside because he goes, there's some great stories you'll never read. And I, I know that. I know that for a fact. So it was a cold call. It's great. It's like a blind date that worked. So <laughs> I was happy. I realize this is brand new for you, but let's face it. If you weren't a, a creative person, an imaginative person, the person who gets involved in, in, in a lot of uh, fantasy life, uh, you can't do what you're doing every day, even when you're doing the automotive stuff. Although I would say that when you're doing the automotive stuff, you are traveling to places, or at least you used to travel to places all over the world, which, which, which feed that uh, important part of the, the creative mind. Need to ask, have you thought about the next step in other words, um, Netflix or somebody uh, picking up a movie based on a script uh, written by a screenplay writer based on Lorraine Sommerfeld's book, Face in the Window. Has your mind taken you there? Oh, of course, because when you write it, you're seeing it. And anyone I know that's read it, like friends or family who have read it, they go, the hardest time they have is they can hear my voice all the way through it. They can see the cottage like they know. So it's very visual. The book's very visual. All the, those decisions, though, not my wheelhouse. I, I've got nothing for that. I, I don't make movies. I can write scripts. I know how to do that. But now this is this is a fun ride, and I didn't expect this to happen, which I know everyone says that, but it's the truth. So, so, you, so you don't have your mind made up yet on who plays the, the bad guy? No, because I don't like bad guys. So I know who I would like to play. Ma- I, Maggie. I only care about Maggie. She's my favorite character. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to talk to you in a moment about getting to know Maggie because it's always an interesting relationship when a writer uh, begins to you know fall in love with, with their with their protagonist. So here's here's the question before I do any of that. Um, who just so in the, in the mind's eye of anyone who's who's listening to this right now, uh, who do you see? as Maggie, and I want you to hopefully pick someone that everyone can visualize. Well, I don't know if everyone will know her or not, but Margot Martindale is one of my favorite actors. She was in The Americans, and she was in Justified, and she is phenomenal, and I love her, and she's Maggie. She's perfect. So if anyone's listening, yes, cast Maggie, and I'll let you cast anyone else the way you want. That's fun. Hi, I'm Joel McLeod, co-host of the 905er podcast. The 905 is one of the most diverse and densely populated regions of Canada. Four and a half million of us live, work, and play in the area surrounding Toronto. That's more people in the 905 than actually live in Toronto. Each election, the 905 decides who forms our government at both the provincial and federal levels. So why isn't more attention being focused on us here in the 905? We're looking to change that. My co-hosts, Roland Tanner and I, tell the stories that define what we are calling the most important region in Canada. Each week, we bring to your attention news, culture, and issues that make up what it means to be a 905er. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. Or you can visit us at 905er.ca to subscribe. Now, more with Charles Adler. So the the business of developing a character and then developing a relationship with with that character. Tell me what that's like for Lorraine Sommerfeld. Some of them are really easy, um, because you there's little Easter eggs all through the book that my kids actually one of my kids will never read this book, but people that know me will find little things and go oh that that actually happened or you know that that was a real thing. 
it's difficult to build up. You, you only have to have as many characters as you need. It's very tempting to have too many and readers can get lost. So I had to learn how to throw away characters, which was fine. Um, but they have to be individuals. They can't all have the same voice. And I've been told I'm good at dialogue when I'm doing my column stuff. Dialogue is incredibly hard and you have to say it out loud after you've read it. And a lot of times what happens because one writer is writing it, everyone ends up sounding the same. And that's when you fall down a hole. So you need to differentiate your characters, not just by what they wear or what their job is, but by how they sound and their syntax and the words they choose. And I've got four good old boys in this book and they're my favorite. I love them. They're hilarious. But I, I know people like this. I mean, of course they do. So I hope they don't hold it against me. <laughs> so Lorraine, I want to ask you, is it difficult to make this transition between writing about cars and, and trucks and buses to writing face in the window? Is that is that tough to do? Do you have to do it at different times of day, different, different seasons? How does that work for yeah. the human mind? I have to carve out when we finish this, I have to go write about some sales practices that some dealers are doing, which is really uh, scuzzy. So I'll be doing that this afternoon. Uh, you do have to flip your brain around like it's on a switch. And writing this is how I reward myself for getting my, I call it my real work done. And so I have used this over the years. When I can get back to this, that's my reward. It means I finished you know, what I was supposed to do. This isn't the bread and butter. This is the this is the fireworks part for me. This is the fun. But I think you've always sort of walked on both sides of the street because you've been writing about cars for a number of years, but you've also been doing the mother load column. And I, 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 I don't think that the average person would look at both those columns and just automatically go, Oh yeah, that, 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 you know, <laughs> you know it's gotta be the same person. It's true. They brought me into the auto section. I was in the living section and I developed a nice readership and they said, Oh, we're re-upping the auto section. We'd like you to write a column in there. And I said, oh, hell no. No, I don't want to. And they said, we'll pay you more. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and I said, I get to write whatever I want. And they went, all right. Because I said, I'm not going to car shows. I'm not doing car reviews. I don't want, I know how I don't want to. And one of the first columns I wrote was, I remember being six or seven, up at the cottage with my dad in the station wagon. He picked up a hitchhiker and I was in the back, I was in the front seat with my dad because little kids could ride out front then. And I remember thinking, Jesus just got in the car because this is in the late sixties. So this guy had a beard and long hair and sandals. And he, my dad pulls over, the guy hops in and I'm just fascinated. I'm staring at him through the headrest and just all eyes. And we drive him a few miles. The dad goes, God, let you out here. So, and he gets out. My dad just looks at me. He goes, don't you tell your mother. I go, okay, okay, I won't. I won't. But to me, if I talk about cars, that's the kind of stuff I'm remembering. Trips back to Saskatchewan, which were painful. Um, just everywhere in a station wagon, pulling out tree stumps with a 66 Rambler when I was a kid. The, the, the towel bar at our cottage is the grab rail from the back of the 66 Rambler. You know, behind the back seat, that's our towel bar at the cottage in the hallway. So that's an old car, like really old. My father got everything out of them. But so I said, yeah, you want me to write auto? That's what you're going to get. So that's what I started doing and then eventually learned more. And, you know, then I had a TV show for seven years, live calling. That was very, very informative. I learned a ton doing that. It was fun. 
So I tell people that my favorite guests are smart and they love telling stories and they don't mind too much about asking about people asking them, people like me, bothering them with uncomfortable questions. But the other thing I always mention is they're also fearless. So Lorraine Sommerfeld and, and, and fearlessness. I think most people would agree that writing about mental illness, writing about being bipolar is a pretty fearless thing to do. I don't know too many people who would have the, the guts to overcome their fears and do that. How difficult was that for you? Um, I owed it to my readers, actually. And I've been really open about a lot of things. We have breast cancer gene in our family. I've had a preventative mastectomy. So is my sister. Like, we're open. If it happens to me, chances are really good it's happening to other people as well. And if I'm a voice they trust, even for, you know, 600 words a week, I owe them that. I wouldn't have this job that I love so much if I didn't have readers that felt they could come in. And I was, Mother Lowe was in the star at that point. That was in two newspapers at the time. I had two columns going in the star. And I talked to my shrink. I said, and some hockey players, you know, the brain injury that messes with hockey players and Wade Belak had just killed himself. And I was absolutely a mess because this is a young man who we just don't handle this right at all. And a lot of people can be dismissive and go mental illness. It's like, well, I need to tell everyone we're all living with it because if it's not you, it's someone you love. And we're not doing a really good job of this. So I thought, I have this platform, two, two big papers. So I wrote and said, okay, you know what you think of me already. I've been writing for years. You know what you think of me as a daughter, a sister, a mother, you know, a human being. You've already made up your mind. So let me tell you, I'm bipolar. This is what it looks like. This is what it is. And for a lot of people, seeing someone who was, I shouldn't throw the word normal around because I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Who is, who, is, who is normal? I mean, seriously. Exactly. Who is but normal? It, it let people, and as more people with a platform acknowledge these things, it's like, let's normalize being whoever we are. And let's make, the only thing harder than living with a mental illness is pretending you're not. The energy it takes to not be honest and to not take care of yourself far exceeds the energy it would take to just handle it properly if nobody had to be keep hiding. And, you know, you go up and down, you have dips. You know, I raised my kids. I did it on my own pretty much. Um, it, you have to be open about this stuff. So I've been really open when I write. And some people go, oh, you're too much, too much. Don't tell people, you know, you have to protect stuff. I go, no, I don't tell other people's stories. I, I don't speak about my family, my kids. Anything I write about them is cleared with them, definitely. And one of my sons, he had a brain tumor removed two years ago. It's been rocky. He goes, you can tell them anything you want. My other son goes, you can tell them my first name. <laughs> That's it. So two very different approaches, and I honor both of them. <laughs> did you have anyone in your life uh, who said, Lorraine, you really didn't have to do that? Um, no, because what I, I have this thing. I accept advice from people I respect. I also will take criticism from those same people. If I listened to every voice that told me not to do something, I would be locked down. I would not move because there's criticism everywhere. So I decide ahead of time who's who I trust, and it's probably on, it's on one hand. I will take criticism from them, and 
they're also the only people I believe when they say I did something good. So <laughs> it's good. But I think you can't let every voice come through. You can't, you'll just be frozen. You won't be able to move. So when I make up my mind, I test it against people who are smarter than I am and that know me and go, okay, here we go from here. And it, it was the right thing to do. I heard from about 500 people, probably more over the coming months. I heard from people in every single walk of life that you can't imagine. And one young man, oh, I'll never forget, the, this still makes me cry. He said he was sitting in his psychiatrist's office and the paper was sitting there. And he read the column, I'm bipolar. I have Tigger and Eeyore in me at the same time. And he goes, the shrink had just told me I'm bipolar. He goes, I thought my life was over and that I would never, ever, ever be able to achieve anything. He goes, and I read that. And he wrote to me, he goes, the timing was good. Thank you. I feel a little bit better about that. So I was grateful, but he wrote back to me a couple of years ago. So this has been 10 years. He said, I'm a life coach. I do this. I help other people. He goes, I need you to know that that was what I needed to hear in that moment. I needed to hear it. And that could have come from anyone. It didn't have to come from me. So think if there was all these supportive things around all of us all the time, chances are better that somebody would stumble on a little piece of support and be okay, because we can be okay, but we have to acknowledge it. What was going on in your life uh, that made you think, I've got to get this checked out. Something is, something <laughs> is haywire. Oh, my father died. There's a trigger for most people. Um, my father died in the space of three years. My father died. My marriage fell apart. I, I pulled it apart. I had a full breakdown. Uh, my kids were two and five. Marriage is gone. My mother was dying. She died a year later. I got in a car crash. Not my fault. Wasn't driving. And then I got fired once or twice. So in a three-year period, all this happened. And I thought, well, I might as well be a humor writer. There's nothing left <laughs> so I have to do this. And that's when I started writing. But my father's death was absolutely the trigger for this. He'd been sick for a long time, and I'd been holding it together. I was one of those glue people in the family, you know, the middle kids that keep everybody. And then the doors just blew off, and I went, I can't do this anymore. But I had to keep getting up. I had those kids to support, and everything was just a mess. But... You do what you, you do what you got to do. Are we lucky that we're living in this century? And the only reason I ask is because in the uh, previous century, which is when I started working in this business, it would have been very, very difficult uh, for an employer. Whether whether this is good or bad is not not the issue. This is just the way it was. It was very difficult for an employer uh, to deal with the idea of an employee or a freelance writer having mental illness, writing about it, writing about someone else's mental illness, for sure, but not about their own. It was just a, a call it stigma, call it whatever you want, a, a different different standards. It, we can call it the dark ages if we like. But sometimes, you know, we, we talk about the good old days and we're nostalgic about many, many things about, you know, things that were going on 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. But I'm always looking for some of the positives. Is there is there a positive in the fact that a Lorraine Sommerfeld can, in this era, in this century, write about her own uh, mental illness and not fear losing work? I don't know that we've changed as much as you would like to think we have. Um, the stigma is still massive. Employers, you can't walk into a job interview and say, oh, by the way, I'm bipolar, and have them go, cool, we were looking for a bipolar person <laughs> to fill this job. 
So that for as much as box. we, yeah, like as long as you know, I, I don't think we can say we've come that far. I'm freelance. I've always been freelance, so I'm easy to get rid of. I I don't have a dental plan. Like I don't cost much in the greater scheme of things, and I believe we self censor. Most of us are trying to protect our jobs, depending on what they are. I've seen it backfire on some very prominent people who have come forward, and there's been fallout from it. So I, I don't know that we can, I don't know, keep saying we're being brave when we're not, but I was in a position to do it. What are they going to do, fire me? I mean, you know, have at it. So I like when people are brave enough to do it. I also acknowledge that some of us are in a better position than others to do that. And it doesn't take away from the ones who don't feel safe. Do you feel closer uh, to the people who read you after you reveal something as important and, and dramatic as that? Does that bring you, in your mind, I know it brings readers closer to you. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But do you feel closer to your readers once you're able to share that with them? I, I have a really good personal relationship with a lot of my readers. They're incredibly loyal. I give speeches all around here all the time at community groups and stuff. They're so loyal and I'm so grateful for them. Um, Yeah, I think my honesty helps them. And I've got readers that if I haven't heard from them in a couple months, I email them to make sure they're okay. <laughs> like, seriously, I've had people that have been writing to me. There's a character in the book named after one of my late readers who I just adored. She used to write to me all the time. She died a couple of years ago. I hope her family sees this. I, Her whole name is in there because <laughs> she was terrific. So that, that's the nice part of a small pond. I'm in the Golden Horseshoe here in southern Ontario with the Hamilton spec. These people are just gold. They're amazing. When it comes to politics, uh, do you go through phases where you want to be uh, political or at least you want to be outwardly, overtly opinionated and then you go through other phases where you just you're just – you're just sick of it. It's a negative for and you don't want to bother. Just where is Lorraine Sommerfeld day to day on on politics? Well, I have to I get poli- I get political probably twice a year. I write every week. Most people want to be entertained by me, not scolded or preached to. And so I try and I burn my capital at very good moments, like right before an election or something. I am political. I'm a political animal. I do have very big opinions. I also love information and I want new resources. I want to know what's new. I don't want to be one of those entrenched people who can't see beyond what, you know, what was maybe a fact 10 years ago. Um, But again, I, I know my lane. Um, Mother Lode is to entertain and talk about, um, you know, day-to-day life stuff can be medical things. Cars are cars. That's got to be car stuff. And the car people get really angry when I get political but when you're talking about EVs and the ring of fire and mining, it's political. It, everything's political. But I do try and uh, I try and keep my powder dry until the moment's going to get me the biggest return. We used to say uh, that you know religion was the big divider. Uh, that uh, you know people if people had certain religious views and somebody else offended their views, that would be a sort of a friendship breaker. Is politics mm-hmm. becoming like that? It is. I've lost friends. And I can't, I was raised as a conservative. Um, Like I said, my father's a prairie boy. I've been involved in politics ever since I can remember. I've watched this, oh, the polarization. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I I think of Bill Davis, the premier of Ontario. It was amazing. I look at, you know, Joe Clark, conservative, like conservative people. 
who could talk to each other and things, you know, if the other side of the aisle had a better idea, I was raised watching that be implemented because it made sense for everybody. So I'm raised watching politicians work together where, you know, when they could. Now I I watch what's happening here, but especially in the U.S., it's appalling. They're not working for, they're not working for people. They're working to get reelected. They're working to line their pockets. I am, I've never been so, I, I don't know what to say. I wasn't raised like this. We, we were, we deserve better. We just do, but I don't know who would go into politics. What person in their right mind would go into politics? I like, I'll open my cupboard for you. The skeletons will come piling out. Like <laughs> I've been asked to run because I have, you know, name recognition in the area. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I'd have to start, you know, lying. I tell the truth. So it may be why you want me, but you're not going to like it if I'm telling you that you're wrong, which would happen. So, yeah, it's, it's not a nice time. You know, hey, you're, you're, a, you're a person after my heart on you know, many levels. And, you know, you just mentioned Bill Davis, and it was uh, Bill Davis that made me vote conservative for the first time. Bill Davis, specifically Bill Davis and Lincoln Alexander. I was in uh, Hamilton, not very far from where you are right now, when I cast my first conservative vote because I was a, a kid. I was very, very young, early 20s out of uh, Montreal. And... Um, you know, these days, I know that people who are 20, 30 years younger than me, they've got a hard time with this because, you know, they see me as a fierce opponent of the conservatives. and They think of me as this, you know, radical liberal at times, a radical progressive. And I find all of that silly because, you know, in my heart, I'll always be a, a Bill Davis conservative. But there's, no, I guess, not much point in explaining and explaining and explaining that to someone 20 or 30 years younger than me because they just weren't around for Bill Davis. But Bill Davis gave conservatism a really, really good name. He did. He was solid. Like, I have so much respect for what the Conservative Party used to be. I have so much confusion for people that don't understand that it is gone. And this is the Reform Party. And I've watched you get all tangled up uh, because you called it like you saw it. And you said, I can't go along with this anymore. Like, you weren't just a mouthpiece with an instant vote, you know, a check by the blue box. It's like, no. So I think the fact any of us are willing to listen, change, change sides, so to speak. I hate that it's sides. I, I, I hate the thrashing of the opponents. I also hate the I love Trudeau stuff. It's like, come on, this is not, no, this is not Tiger Beat. This is our lives. So I hate the super pro as much as I hate the, the anti. Like, I, I think it's all a little silly, frankly. And we should pay more attention to what's going on instead of the flowers all around it. But yeah. well, the conservative you know home was my home for so many years. I didn't even think of it in those terms. It just it was just it was just the way the way it was. I didn't think of it in those terms until I lost it. And uh, I don't I don't mind uh, saying because I mean you know I'm, I'm I'm supposed to be saying things. It doesn't matter what the topic is. Uh, saying some of the things that many members of the public don't want to say. So in this sense, while I'm speaking for myself, I know I'm speaking for many others. So I'll just say it. Um, breaks my heart to see what's happened to yeah. conservatism. It really we, does. We need healthy parties. And right now, this is not what we're being given. And on a provincial level, especially on a federal level, it, it shouldn't, this shouldn't have happened. And this race for the lowest common denominator, it breaks my heart. Cause like you, politics should be a phenomenal sport. It should be amazing. It should be like brainiacs having crazy conversations that bore the 
snot out of everybody else. But, <laughs> you know, I was raised loving those conversations. My sisters used to just run. and like, you take dad. We're not talking about this. But it's good. It's it's exercising your brain. It's making it think in different ways. It's making different synapses go off. And that's what it should be doing. It should be testing you all the time to want better. Well, you, you have know, to do the best for the most. And we're not. Because of the career path that I chose, I had my feet to, you know, firmly planted in different parts of the country. Ontario and Alberta were the two, you know, major provinces where I had my feet planted. And so in Ontario, my idea of a conservative was, was Bill Davis, as we just shared. And in Alberta, it was Peter Lougheed. And both had so much in common. But what they had in common the most was they wouldn't insult the intelligence of the audience. And they also felt that they represented everybody, not just the people who vote for them and certainly not just the people who who were donating money. And I just thought of both of them as thoughtful conservatives, uh, people who had hearts attached to their heads. And that that's that's... That's just not something that I see much anymore. And I'm not, not trying to sit here and just uh, throw, throw rocks uh, at, the, uh, at the current uh, crop of conservatives. But, you know, compassionate uh, and thoughtful, uh, th- those, those virtues are not the first two that come to mind when, when I think about them. No. And it's our loss. Like, we need cooperative leaders. We need leaders, first and foremost. They're leading. I want... I don't want to be embarrassed by what's coming out of their mouths. And sometimes I am. And I think part of my biggest problem, I was talking to a friend a few weeks ago. I said, I really thought when I was a kid, I was waiting for the adults to show up to tell me what to do and they would lead us. I'm still waiting for the adults to show up. And that's sad because I'm older than most of our leaders that we have now. But I really feel like I was promised adults in the room who would take charge. And I don't think that's been delivered to me. And that bothers me a lot because we deserve that. Lorraine, there's no way that uh, I'm going to say so long to you before discussing a uh, mother load because um, yeah, I respect you as an automotive writer and I respect you now as, a, as, as an author. And very soon I know I'll be able to call you an accomplished author. But it wouldn't be fair not to discuss mother load because professionally in some ways it is the love of your life. So tell me where it began and, and tell me where it's at right now. And I, I think you're up to something like 800 columns, I think, in the Hamilton Spectator. I could be off by a, a dozen or so. Um, I was turning 40, miserable, getting fired. And I heard the spec was looking for a mommy columnist, which grates me up one side and down the other still, but it's like, okay. And I thought, well, I can be broken, miserable, or broken, happy. I got to try it. So I, someone said, these are the editors. So I went into the paper. It doesn't, doesn't even exist anymore went in with two stories I'd written because Irma Bombeck was my hero growing up. I loved Irma Bombeck and she was the example to me of how to write about your family, which means you never punch down. The only punchline is me, never my children. You don't, if they have stories, those are their stories to tell. So Irma taught me how to write about children for the public. And there's a lot of people that really should go back and read Irma's stuff to understand how to write about your children. But I went in with a couple stories and they read them in front of me and they started laughing And when you've never published anything and they're reading it in front of you, it's like, oh my. Anyway, they said, we'll give you six weeks, see how it happens. I went, what? I had to go home and get internet. I didn't have internet. And Mother Lode will be 20 this fall in October. And so from that six weeks, and I called them and said, should I stop now? They said, no, keep going. I said, oh, okay. So I just 
every week. They got a story about my kids or my cats or my dead parents or the house. I've written about everything. I've written about doorknobs. <laughs> so we know where to find Mother Load. Mother Load's in the Hamilton Spectator. Just Google yeah. Mother Load and, and you'll you'll find it. And the uh, load is uh, L-O-D-E. So it's Mother Load, all one word. Uh, it's L-O-D-E. And uh, we know where to find it. Where do we find your new book, Lorraine Sommerfeld, Face in the Window? Uh, you can go to afaceinthewindow.com and there's a website. You can also find it on Amazon and in the States, Barnes & Noble. Uh, but the face, A Face in the Window, if you Google, it'll come up. There's a website with all the links and stuff. And the car stuff is all at driving.ca if you care about car stuff. But so, Yeah. And my launch tomorrow night. People are coming. I'm so excited. Where are you? <laughs> a different drummer bookstore in Burlington, which is amazing. I'm so grateful that they're doing it. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Don't I look You're... excited? I, I never get this excited about anything. <laughs> no, you get you get excited about lots of stuff, but <laughs> you are, you are, you are Burlington. I mean, I, I've lived in Burlington a couple of times and um, I've known lots of people who like Burlington, but I've never met anybody. I know you don't want to, run for office and, and and all of that. And, you know, provincial, federal, it gets pretty grimy. But I'll tell you, if you ever decide to run for mayor of Burlington, <laughs> okay, I do not envy anyone who runs against you. Our mayor is just fine. I, I don't like to go to meetings. I like to be home by like seven o'clock. So <laughs> I wouldn't make a very good politician. <laughs> well, so many readers uh, love you, uh, Lorraine Sommerfeld, and I should say viewers as well, because you've been all over TV and, and all over radio. And uh, it won't take me as long. I don't know. It's been about a couple of years. Of course, I, I did a, a couple of things like sort of semi-retired. So I guess I've got that excuse. But I'm not going to wait another two years before the next catch-up. Thanks. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press. And every day at CryerMedia.co.